Hello and welcome to another episode of the Creative Waffle Podcast. I am your host Mark Hirons and today we are chatting with the fantastic Dustin Lee. Dustin heads up Retro Supply and is a king of passive income. During the show we chat about him growing up, discovering his passion for retro stuff, we talk a lot about creative markets, how he uses it, any limitations, what makes a good seller, what are the biggest lessons that he's learnt, do freebies work and do they really bring in more paying customers. We talk a little bit about email lists and his best purchase under $100. So we discuss a lot of things, let's get into it. Without further ado, this is my chat with Dustin Lee. There we go then. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Um, yeah, I think when we met Creative South, we were both shoveling um, southern fried foods into our mouth, so we were we were focused more on that than chatting. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I, had a, I had a pain to catch as well, but yeah. So well, let's go. Let's go into your background and how you where you grew up and your you know, discovering that you loved design and illustration and and your how you found your passion for retro stuff. So I was born in California. And I was, it's such a cliche to say this, but I was into drawing, I guess, like probably most kids. And then I moved up to Washington State, um, which is on the, on the west, west coast of the United States. And I got accepted to go to an art school for high school, which was a magnet school, which is kind of a rare thing. And I studied dancing. <laughs> they, they forced you to, to study all art. So I had to study dancing, uh, film, drawing, painting, writing, all those things, uh, music. And I really wanted to be a rock star. I thought I was going to be a rock star. I got approved. I got approved to go to Berkeley College of Music, which is, you know, the big school to go to if you want to be a John Mayer or someone like that, you know, in the, in the States. And then I just, at the last minute, decided it was a really bad idea because so many musicians are broke. I thought I'm going to work on my art on my own and I'm going to study business instead and um that took me down a long path of working in banking and doing all sorts of businessy boring stuff um and finally i got sick of it and started working in design you've got a guitar in the background can you play the guitar i can play the guitar yeah are you you like literally play now if you want to yeah i don't mind or or did you mean can i play one yeah i can i mean yeah both both (laughs) um yeah here i'll play i'll play once you have a little cut of it i played in a band for years and um I just couldn't get to work and I, I figured out it was because of, um, to I think be a successful band, you have to be not only good musicians, but good marketers. Right. And you also have to be good. And uh, we weren't that great of music. We weren't a great band. Right. There were some good musicians, but we weren't a great band and we were horrible marketers. And I actually got kicked out of the band because I kept saying that we need to market ourselves. And they hated that. They kept saying, you know, just focus on the music. If the music is great, like everything else will take care of itself. Um, <laughs> I don't have to play, but here, I'll play it since I'm talking about John Mayer, which I get a lot of flack for, because for liking John Mayer, but uh, this is a pretty cool little guitar. I'm a little rusty too. I design more than I play guitar now. Yeah, <laughs> you're the first person who's ever done that on the on the podcast. So thank you. <laughs> Sweet. Um, yeah. I hope if anyone needs a uh, a fairly kind of okay guitar player to play some okay mediocre guitar I'm here. <laughs> so okay, so you moved away from music and the art and the, and the acting stuff. And um, you say it was acting. You say acting, didn't you? 
Yeah, I mean, theaters are all sorts of arts, but I wasn't yeah. particularly into acting. We did film. Right, okay, sorry, yeah. So you moved away from that stuff. Um, so retro stuff, how did that enter your life and how, how have you stuck with it? It entered my life because I'm a naturally nostalgic person. I look back with fondness on the toys and commercials and television shows and pop culture from the 80s when I grew up. And I spent a lot of time when I was a little child at my grandmother's house and her house was packed with stuff that she had held on to from the 60s and 70s, you know, old like, I don't know, Brillo pad packaging. I mean, you know, like there's like old toy packaging. I have this stuff all over the place. Um, old like beer advertisement and stuff, bunch of matchbooks. Anyways, I just like always liked that stuff and I didn't understand that it was a job the people made this stuff with intention of trying to make people buy stuff. Right. Never occurred to me, but I was just fascinated by it. And when I was going through a really rough period in my life, I was drinking too much. I was working on various businesses that were failing. And I'd moved down to California to help take care of my grandmother. Cause my grandfather died and my grandmother had um, Alzheimer's has Alzheimer's. She's still alive. Right. And we were living in this house and it was like going back in time. This is where I'd spent so much time when I was a kid. And I was all of a sudden surrounded by this old retro mid-century stuff again. And then I found out we had a baby on the way and it just changed my life. So I realized, okay, got to quit drinking, got to quit smoking. I quit doing those things. I don't know how it was absolutely amazing. And literally overnight I stopped. I'm very grateful for that. Um, and I was like, okay, I need to make a, a side business because all my daytime hours were spent on this startup I was making with a friend. Mm. So I started just making stuff. And I, I really didn't think about it. I just started making what I was interested in, which was really retro mid-century stuff. I was recreating for design people, um, the stuff that I loved from my youth and the stuff that I was surrounded by at my grandmother's house. It, it did well, but um, I think when things really started to take off was when I realized that you could mix marketing with graphic design and it works so much better. That's awesome. You said it wasn't, sorry to do guys too much into, into that, but I think that's a really interesting thing because if there is anyone listening, that what needs to now make that change? How, how can you, you said it happened overnight that stopped drinking and stopped and got your priorities a bit straighter and, and got into gear. How, how did you make that? I mean, you said it wasn't, it was overnight, but. You know, this is not the most helpful answer, I think, but I really think, you know, call it God help me or something really deep inside of myself. Just couldn't stand the idea of having my little daughter be born and not having any money and her dad being intoxicated or smelling like alcohol and cigarettes. All those things kind of rushed through my mind and, it, it was just the kick in the butt that I needed. It really was. I wish that I had some sort of trick or hack yeah, or program I followed, but it was just getting my really having a big life event happen. I think that happens for a lot of people, you know, like you get fed up with a job and all of a sudden you say enough is enough and you start, you know, a little side design business or it's always some sort of life event. And I guess the biggest tip I could tell people to take away from that is when something can you cut on your program? Are we, are we allowed to say obscenities or try to keep it clean? <laughs> yeah, we can, no, we can swear. You do what you want. I don't mind. Okay. When shit really hits the fan in your life, it's really easy to, you know, want to like just like lay in bed and play gay video games and eat and just forget about the world. But remember when something really shitty happens in your life, 
you've just gotten a gift in the sense that a few times in your life that happens and you get the chance to have massive leverage. It's so painful that you have the ability to make changes that you've been too lazy or been putting off for so long. And so that was the advantage of this, finding out this little girl was on the way for me. And I was at my grandmother's house. I just was like, I have got to get my life together. Like it's time to become a grown up. Yeah. And that just was like the fuel that kept me running to get that business going. I have no doubt it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't um, been in such a, a bad position. So if you're in a bad position or you're frustrated, man, try to like leverage that. It's hard, but such a great way to, to use that to benefit yourself. Uh, well, wow. I mean, I'm lucky enough. I haven't really been in that situation yet. So it's, it's um, yeah, it's, that's powerful. That is. Do you find that, retro stuff has made you think was well, so you saying it's, it's kept you thinking about the young your, your youth and your younger do you think that's kept you young as well kept you more creative because when you go out come out of school and stuff you know you, you get sort of taught to be less creative as you're coming through school and you get sort of drawn out of you do you think you sort of held on to it as you and you already found it when you when you saw the stuff i think to some degree i think maybe not the retro aspect as much as the fact that I'm in such a weird field of design where you're selling assets to other people. To a large degree, we can do whatever we want. So we can say, we're going to, you know, we're going to call this one, <laughs> we've made weird names for stuff. We called one photocopy hate machine. It was just <laughs> such a weird random name. You know, that would never get past like your art director if you were working at an agency. So I think the creativity, the creativity has been stayed alive because we can do whatever and I pay the cost if it doesn't sell or doesn't do well. Do you have like a physical collection of, of stuff? I do. Um, I really need to organize it better. I have like a small, like you can kind of see it. It's yeah, actually it's on the other side. You can't see it. I have like a metal cabinet with some stuff in it. Um, and yeah, so I have real retro stuff. I always go in and pick up the stuff I like. And then I have so much in the garage. That's an absolute mess. It's embarrassing. Um, and I'm, looking to buy I think I'm going to buy one of those Uline if, if anyone's not familiar with Uline go check out Uline they sell like you know poster tubes you probably know poster tubes um anything for packaging or business in general and they have these amazing metal cabinets yeah. and different storage things for a really fair price so I'm going to buy one of those to save stuff in because I have old books old clip art catalogs just random stuff like the stuff I just showed you but yeah I'm trying really hard not to be a hoarder <laughs> It's hard though. People in general just like to keep stuff that reminds them of um, bits. I'm actually, I've just started a book called Declass Your Life. Uh, and it's, it's an interesting one. I've only got a couple of pages in, but I think I'm really going to enjoy it. And there's loads of stuff from my childhood underneath my bed. I've got a storage space under there. I need to get rid of it. I need to. <laughs> it would be uh, even better if it was just underneath your bed, not in storage space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So why, why, why retro stuff? Why did you continue with that path rather than going on any other sort of style of design or have you tried other styles well before i had retro supply i i had done a variety of other types of design i was an in-house designer for a variety of jobs that i did that for and it was definitely not retro retro supply was really was never made to be something that i was going to be doing six years later i i just was trying to make a little bit of side money and literally in 30 minutes maybe i came up with the name retro supply and i just started putting stuff out and the business grew and it was what it was, but there did come a point. So retro stuff is really, really popular. And I hate to think of retro as a trend because people have been making, I mean, if you, if you look back into, you know, 
biblical times, people were making retro stuff that looked like it was 200 years older. So people always make nostalgic stuff. Um, so I don't think of it as a trend, although there is kind of like this subset of it that's a trend where you have this stuff that's not even really retro at all. It's just, I don't even know what it is. It's like faux retro. I don't know. Um, but it, it just kind of grew and, it, and um, there came a point where it wasn't as successful. And I remember on Creative Market, which is where I started selling, which is a marketplace to sell design goods, all of a sudden watercolors and script fonts became really popular. And I had been like, there was a point where I was, the entire front page was my stuff. No joke, I've screenshot of this. It's like the whole front page, it was amazing. And then all of a sudden it went from that to script fonts and watercolor packs covering the front page. And I couldn't save my life, get something to the front page. And even now, like if I do, it only goes there for like a day or two. I mean, it's a, it's a much more tough environment, but I had to make a choice. Yeah. Do I keep doing the retro stuff or do I start doing scripts and watercolors? Because that's what everyone wants to do. And that's what people are buying more. And I thought to myself, I don't really care much for these really loose, inky scripts and watercolors. And I don't know because I don't really care for it at all. If I could even do it good, I don't want to do it good. I don't care to get better at it. And I really thought about it and I finally just decided, you know what? I'm going to be the retro guy. I'm going to double down on that and I'm going to be the retro guy that goes all in so hard on that that whenever someone thinks of selling, of buying like a retro type resource of brush or whatever, they think of me because I did that. Like if everyone was going the other direction, I said, I'll stick to the people that still want that. And, yeah. I'll, and I'll just really, really focus on that. And that was a hard decision. It was a scary decision, but it turned out to work so good because by sticking to what I wanted to do, the competition was thinner and I was able to really be my own self. Yeah. Do you have any other competitors that are doing the same thing? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, any as big as you or, or, or not? Because I haven't heard of it. Oh, okay, so here's the thing. I, I could name off a couple competitors. There's definitely competitors in the space. Um, but I found that from the very beginning, I am a person that's anxious and someone that will compare myself. I think like a lot of people, we want to compare ourselves to others. Yeah. So, but first, I would obsess. A good person to mention is Ian Bernard because, or the, the proper British way to say it is Ian Barnard. Barnard, yeah, yeah. But I always call him Bernard, which drives him bananas. Um, he was originally Vintage Design Co., I believe is what he was called. And he was making stuff really similar to me. And I remember he would release something and I would get like a rock in my stomach. I'd be so stressed because it would be pretty damn good. And it would just stress me out. And I would obsess over where is it? How many is it selling? Did it pass You know, my similar thing? And I felt that way about other people. And eventually I realized it was making me miserable. And whether you sell design goods or whether you're just a designer, um, not just a designer, but a designer, you know, doing freelance work and you have people doing similar work to you. If you're comparing yourself to others and you're like me and it makes you miserable, stop. Like I know our brains tell us if I compare myself to others, if I watch what they're doing, somehow it helps me. Yeah. You know, I need to stay on top of what they're doing. And I did that forever. And finally, I just hated my life. I hated comparing myself. And one day I just said, I'm not going to look. I'm not going to look at the front page of Creative Market. I'm not going to do Google alerts on what other people are doing similar to me so I can see what they're doing and try to outdo them at it. I'm going to do what I want to do, what I think is neat, what my customers want, and totally ignore these other people. And if that means that I don't make quite as much money, then so be it. I'm not going to sit around being miserable because someone else decided to do what I'm doing or do something similar. Best decision I ever made, man. I am so much happier that I don't check that. Yeah. Comparing yourself is poison, man. <laughs> it really is. 
so I come from a sports background. So, well, my parents are very sporty, and, and especially my dad. He's, I played football as a kid and everything, and lots of different sports. But so I'm fairly competitive, I think, by nature. Uh, and I still have a very, very high competitive level in design and in business. And it's not, it's not healthy. And I'm trying to figure out how way to get out of it. How do I, how do I stop? Just, just literally, just stop looking at other people. But I mean, it's it's hard in that because they pop up, they pop up in places. I don't know. I mean, for me, it was just one of those things, you know, we like human beings, we avoid pain and we look for pleasure. And it was just so painful to me that I just got mad one day and just said, like, enough is enough. Like, why am I letting this person that I don't even know control my emotions, you know, or, or ruin my day? Yeah. You know, I mean, I would literally like see someone's product come out and then I would get sad. I'd get angry and sad. I'd be sad and I'd be angry because I felt like they're taking food out of my kid's mouth, especially if it looked very similar to mine. And so I just stopped because of that. I mean, I certainly think for some people, you know, like I envy in some ways people that do have a competitive nature because of sports or because of that's how they're raised. If they can, in a healthy way, use that competitiveness, I think it's a tremendous advantage. I just don't have that. There's a fine line between healthy and you know, unhealthy. If you look at people saying, like like you did, like angry and you know, they're, they're doing so well, they, you know, I'm not as good as them or especially in my, for example, my sister and, and young young teenage girls as well, looking at other people on Instagram and other places, you know, it becomes really dangerous when it's physical appearance. It, it's a, a weird human thing that we do, but there's a nice quote, everyone's got to sort of better themselves, go to bed each day a bit better than they were yesterday. So it's like trying to build yourself up and, and work on yourself, not focusing on anyone else, but it's, yeah, it's damn hard. It's, <laughs> I don't know how to do it, to be honest. I don't know how to do it completely. Yeah. It is really hard and something that has been helpful for me is I've, from going to a lot of conferences and talking to a lot of designers, I've gotten the opportunity to, to meet and talk to a lot of really successful, fantastic designers that are amazing. Yeah. And it's not like their, li- their lives are typically not in balance and that's not a bad thing necessarily, but they're not relaxed. They're not relaxing and, you know, I have, I have two little girls and a brand new little boy and a wife and other things I'm interested in doing. You know, I want to go jam to Smashing Pumpkins or the Beatles or something like that on my guitar or whatever, right? Or, or read marketing books. These people are not good because they spent a few hours doing this. They're oftentimes the very best people are good because they, have, they are living and breathing this sometimes to an obsessive compulsive level where every single hour is taken on it and they're compromising their lives. I'm not saying everyone does that. That would be unfair to say, but just remember if someone's doing better than you, their story is so different than yours. You know, you don't know how they feel inside or how much time they've put into this. So it's worth remembering. Yeah. That's a good point. I find it helps. So let's move on to creative market. How have you started selling on there? What makes a good seller? Um, And are there any limitations to it? Let's do the seller bit first. What makes a good seller on creative market? Uh, a good seller on creative market, uh, probably, well, maybe a better way to answer that is to say what makes a bad seller. Okay. So a bad seller on creative market is someone that doesn't consider what people need and instead considers what they want to make. You know, for instance, um, there was someone I can remember who, uh, you know, great person, but they took um, a bunch of photos of... Uh, ice cream or something like that and put them up for sale and no one bought them no one bought a bunch of pictures of ice cream because you can get a bunch of free pictures of ice cream from unsplash and 
no one's going to pay much money for that. And not, plus there's not a huge market for ice cream photographs. So it didn't do well. Whereas a, a good seller, I think, tends to look at what's already doing well and then asks the deeper question of why is it doing well? And typically the reason something does well is because it can be used in a lot of different cases. So like it has a broad range of uses. So for example, we made a brush pack called Gravecher and it's basically engraving brushes. It's like over a hundred engraving brushes. I'll go along the edges of things, they do circles, they do squares. It makes it really easy to create an engraving effect in Illustrator that would otherwise take you, I personally tried doing it manually, it took me over over uh, almost two hours to do on an Apple. Right. And with this, with this product, you could do something similar in literally 10 minutes. In fact, I made like this engraved eye and it took me like five minutes and three strokes. That's a great product because it makes something that takes a long time much faster. Yeah. So it saves time, which is saving money, right? So it's saving money as well. It creates something that's painful to make. So even if you do do it on your own, it's often you don't have engraving equipment. You have to recreate the look of engraving stuff. Yeah. If something does that for you, you eliminate the pain and annoyance of trying to do it yourself. And it makes you look good. We all want to look good. We all want to make great stuff. So if we can make great stuff that looks good, that people are going to give us lots of likes for and get us more work and, and impress customers, and it only costs 19 or $29 to be able to do that over and over again, that's a great product. Yeah. So I would say know your customers, know what they need. That's Focus good. on that. It's good, yeah. I haven't, actually, I haven't explored in, um, in much into creative market, but I think it's definitely something I want to do when I got a bit more, I say this, when I got a bit more time. <laughs> Everyone says that. Everyone's excuses when I've got a bit more time, but um, I too. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, it's uh, obviously it's helped you massively, um, and it's it's one of the probably one of the most biggest tools you use. Is that right? Uh, Creative Market is where I started. I got a lot of leverage there starting. Um, Creative Market is really, really full of a lot of shops now. Right. So it's much more competitive. There's people that are willing to undercut you on price. So the prices have dropped oftentimes, not always. Um, and to be fair to creative market, creative market is a business and they have to grow. And they do, they have become more strict on accepting people. And the reason is because they want to make sure that buyers can, their goal is to help buyers make a living. So if they, if they flood the market with too many people, no one can make enough money. Mm -hmm. So they do try to prevent that, but I think it's just the natural evolution of a market that you're going to get more sellers, more shop owners, and shop owners are competing, prices are going to drop. Just like a real market. Just like a real market, yeah, exactly, exactly man. Um, so that was my main area, but I moved a lot of my traffic to my own personal site, and that's because when it's on your own site, you're no longer competing in an open market. People are coming to a site that you 100% control with only your stuff, the only options are to give you money, not to give other people money, um, and that makes up about 80% of my income now. Wow, that's awesome, that's, that's amazing actually. Uh, so like, like your website, on your website, you give away quite a lot of free stuff. I'd be interested to know this from your perspective. Why give away free stuff? Does it work? And how does it attract more paying customers? Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, giving away free stuff builds an email list fast. So that's the, the one reason to do it is people will trade an email for a lot of free stuff, mm. but you have to give them a lot of it in order to convince them to trade it for an email address. Like you, you seem to kind of note, does it bring in or paying customers, which I thought was a, a good inner question there because you're right. Um, a lot of people that sign up for free are not people that buy things. So you get a lot of people that sign up, you might not get as many people that wanna buy 
as you would if you approached building your email list a different way. Was giving away a bunch of free stuff the best way to do it, to get the most buying customer, paying customers? I don't know for sure. I did what I knew at the time. It grew my list. I make a fairly good living doing this. I mean, I'm able to pay for my home and my family and employees from doing it. I might, maybe I could have made more. I think I would do it differently. But the big thing, and you're probably aware of this because I believe in the UK, you guys are still technically part of the European Union. At the moment, yeah. <laughs> okay. So you guys under, are under the GDPR, right? So for anyone listening, if you're not familiar, the GDPR, I, I can't remember what it stands for, basic, but basically what it says is anyone who lives in the European Union is protected by clear email rules, which means that people whose emails list you're on need to be explicitly clear about what they're going to be doing with your information. Okay. So they have to tell you. So I, I, I would have sign up and get nine free products from me. Right. And I would kind of say, and also get updates and new product promotions, but I didn't really make that super clear. Like I put it on the bottom, I wasn't trying to hide it, but I was more focusing on what they were interested in, which was the nine free products. Now I have to change that coming May 25th, which probably by the time this is published, will be past then. But on May 25th, in the past, um, the rules will have changed where you'll have to now be very clear and say, I'm going to give you these nine free things, but also be clear that I'm going to be sending you tutorials, I'm going to be sending you product offers. You have to make it crystal clear. And on top of that, which I think is amazing, this is all positive things for consumers. consumers. Um, on top of that, if someone writes to you from the European Union and says, I want you to delete all of my information instantly, not instantly, but fast, mm. you have to do it. Um, and I think that's amazing because the reason behind that is, let's say in some horrible situation, um, a government or a party or something like that was trying to use information to get information about people and discriminate against people. Yep. And they were using websites. Um, understandably, like maybe you'd say, oh my gosh, I don't want to be associated with this website or I don't want this information available. You need to be able to reach out and tell websites, get rid of my information, destroy it. Like I don't want it anywhere because I don't want anyone looking it up. So that's a lot of that's going into effect. Sorry, I was very long-winded on that, but I think it's so such a good thing. Like, it's not super great for businesses in, in many ways because you lose a lot of customers, but I think it's a really positive thing for people. Yeah, I've, I've been getting, actually, that reminds me, yeah, we have had a bit of a bit of uh, new law change, like you say, um, and we've been getting loads and loads of, I've been getting loads and loads of emails from previous things I've subscribed to saying, you have to subscribe again. Um, otherwise, you know, we're not going to get it again, which is fantastic because I just won't hear a reply and then I don't get it. It reminds me of all the stuff I didn't want to subscribe to. Uh, <laughs> which is exactly. Great. And yeah. that's exactly what I think marketers are like, oh no, like people are not going to subscribe. There's no way they're going to see my message, which is kind of a bummer, but it's kind of like what you said, like, hey, if they don't want to receive it, why are you trying to sell them anyways? Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's good for everybody. It just hurts a little bit at first. <laughs> yeah. So, so what's the best way of giving out free stuff? Is it via email or, or how do, what do you, what's the best thing to get in return? Is an email the best thing to get in return? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Because right. think of it this way. Um, one of the biggest things when people try to sell things that makes them fail, the first thing is that they never make something. So many people are like, oh, I need to make it just perfect and they never make it. Right. So let's assume you actually made it and get it out there. If you just post it on social media or... Um, someone with a big following shares it on Instagram, right? It's on Instagram. Maybe the person has 50,000 people following. They see it, you get a couple sales, and then what happens? It goes down the feed until it's gone. And then it's buried in the feed and maybe someone sees it. Yeah. When you have someone's email, you can 
send them an email and tell them, here's what I'm working on. Then when you release it, you can send them another email and say, I released it and here's a special price for you because like, I appreciate you supporting me. And then if they still don't buy, you can send them another email and be like, here's a sample of it. So you can try it with a tutorial so you can play around with it. Email gives you a way to not only talk to people multiple times, but to build a relationship, right? Right. Um, you can have long conversations in emails. You can ask for replies. It's just a much more personal way to do it. And by far, my email list makes me more money than anything. I mean, if I had to make money from social media posts, I would like be homeless right now. Right. Yeah, that's a very serious thing. That's a very serious thing to say. It's probably true. Yeah. What's been the best advice that you've been given and taken on board? The best advice, okay, so this was, this changed my life. Um, two people didn't really give me this advice as much as show me through their example. So when I was in a band playing music, I was in a lot of bands and we never made albums. We never played shows. Or if we did, they were few and far between in the shows and we never made an album. And then I got into an, a band and I remember after a couple of months of practicing, Joel, the lead singer said, all right, I think it's time we go record an album. And I said, well, how are we going to do that? We don't have a studio. We don't know how to record. We don't have money to pay for someone to do it. How do we do it? And his answer was, we just are going to do it. And I was like, but what if we don't have money? He said, well, we'll play gigs and make money. And I said, what if we don't make enough from the gigs? Well, we'll get money out of our savings. Well, what if I don't have savings? Well, then we'll use our credit cards. And his feeling was just, no matter what, we're going to do it. It's just, it's going to happen. He, it wasn't so much about how he just said it will happen. And sure enough, we did, we made three albums. Um, and it was always that way. And I remember he had that kind of, um, way of doing things about everything. He just said, we're going to do this and come hell or high water, uh, good or bad, but the album B, it was going to happen. So that was my first like example of that. And that really made an impact on me. And then I worked for, um, my friend Jonathan Mead, who had, who had a marketing business called Paid to Exist, and he sold online training programs. And I worked with him as a designer, helping make these programs, and he was the same way. Yeah. He would just say, well, we're making this, and it's gonna be released on this day, and then we'd make it and release it, perfect or not. And that just taught me, you make things and you release them no matter what. That's how everyone gets ahead, you know? Like that's how everyone gets ahead. And, and eventually it gets better, you know, with Retro Supply, I put stuff out. At first, was it the best stuff I'd ever made? No, I didn't know what I was doing, but I put it out because I knew that rule. I knew if I put stuff out every week, I'm ahead of most people that will not do that. And I'm sure you know that with the podcast, right? Like when you first started the podcast, you know, like, do I need this microphone? What software should I use? I wouldn't be surprised if like you like just started and like did not use the perfect microphone, did not use the perfect whatever. I didn't use any microphone. Yeah. The one on the top of the Mac. Yeah, exactly. That's how people like, in my opinion, that's how people that get ahead do it. So the best advice is get over needing stuff and make stuff. Um, one thing that I recently have started telling myself is make garbage. Like make utter garbage, like don't truly, but like in your head, when you're feeling overwhelmed, say, I'm about to make garbage and that's okay. And then when you make it, it won't be garbage. It will be pretty decent. Maybe it'll be pretty great, right? Like, but it gets you started because you've set the bar so low that you give yourself permission to make something and it makes it so much easier. It just frees you. And then that will make, it'll get better over time. I like it. I like it. It's relaxing a fire. <laughs> I like this. <laughs> It's yeah, it's so freeing when you start thinking of it that way. Yeah. Uh, at least I found. 
Yeah, that's fantastic advice. That's awesome. So what's, what's been your, because you talked a lot about so when you started in this and your, your child and what's been your biggest struggle and, and um, have you overcome it and your biggest learning from that? Yeah, the biggest struggle. Um, so the biggest struggle is um, there's always like another step to go up. So I went from making zero money, right? And then the business was making like the 3000 a month, maybe. Oh, that's a big step. All of a sudden, I've, I've never been able to make a business make any money. And now I'm, it's making 3000 a month. That was a huge step. That was probably the hardest step in my entire life was to get a business to do that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the business made 10000 a month. That wasn't so hard. Um, because once you made 3000 10000 is fairly similar in terms of what you do. And then all of a sudden, like I, uh, last year, I had my first month where it made 50000 in a month. And I went, whoa, this is getting insane. But then you push up against... The thing, so um, my business, I think, has pushed up against this barrier at right around five hundred thousand dollars a year. I'm not complaining. If all I ever make a year is five hundred thousand plus, you got to remember I have expenses and taxes. I'm not taking all that home. Yeah. Um. But like, then you hit you hit a wall, and like, so now I'm like, how do you make this into a million dollars? So my biggest struggle has been how do you do that because what makes that happen is not the same thing that makes three thousand dollars a month happen. What makes you go to a million dollars is all of a sudden you have to start thinking, okay, how do I handle employees? How do I handle contractors? How do I put systems in place? How do I reduce costs? How do I get the most return on investment um, on each customer? How do I increase cart, you know, cart value like, or a cart average, what, average cart value, whatever. It's like an entirely different suite of issues to deal with to try to push to that higher level. So. I would say that's been the biggest challenge because it's like starting from square one again. It's that feeling of going from zero to a thousand dollars a month, yeah. going from 500,000 to a million or something is the exact same thing. Like I have no idea how, how do people do this? A mystery to me. And then, you know, once you get a million, then you're like, well, how do you do 10 million? It's a whole different thing, like with a whole different set of skills. So that's been the biggest challenge, but it's not like painful. It's fun. You try and try your best, see what happens. So how, so how are you overcoming that? You're just going to keep them going, keep them pushing. What's next? Like, how are you going to overcome that barrier and get the next step? You got plans? Well, um, yeah, yeah, we definitely have plans. Um, I don't want to talk about all of them because some of them yeah, are in the works. Um, but I, I will say one thing that's really helped has been investing in a business. So when you first start to make money, I think the, er, the, the natural reaction is you want to keep all that money for yourself because you're so used to not having very much money that you want to hold on to all that money. And then you start to feel like, I need to invest. I need to invest in employees or contractors that are regularly working so much so that they learn how to do skills in the business like the back of their hand. And so I've gotten to that point where I have people that work for me that are fast. They know how to do things. Um, they don't need me to answer questions or get on calls to help them. So that helps to grow a business. And then the other thing is I heard an interesting statistic. It might be BS, BS, it might be true, but it sounds like it would be true to me. And that is that um, millionaires tend to, on average, own seven different businesses on average. Um, and so that's made me think, okay, you have to have more than one thing. You can't put all your eggs in one basket, to use a cliche. So I have passive income for designers that teaches other designers how to kind of do things like retro supply. Um, that's a huge service to people that need it. And um, there's a lot of free content, but then I charge for like a really premium course on it. Um, and then there's some other projects that we're working on that I won't mention because they're not completely done yet. 
but trying to hit that seven. I'm seeing if when I hit seven, that happens. Nice. Nice. Last two questions. What is your best purchase under $100? I knew this question was coming, yet I still don't have an answer. Um, my, you know, my best purchase under $100 was probably Astropad. So I'm not much of an illustrator. I drew in high school and some in college, but I kind of stopped. And uh, I'm, on, I'm on a podcast called The Honest Designer Show. And I was talking about how I really wanted to get better at drawing and they encouraged me to do a hundred day challenge and I wanted to do it in Illustrator and I bought AstroPad and with my Apple, my iPad Pro and my Apple Pencil, I started using AstroPad and drawing with a blob brush in Illustrator. And the progress over a hundred days is amazing. I think you can check it out on Instagram if you look up like Hey Dustin Lee, I think it is. You can see me start at complete rubbish to use a British term. And um now make some pretty cool stuff. You know, it's still not, I mean, it's not, ama- it's not the most amazing stuff you've seen, but you can see the improvement. So that was definitely the best, one of the best purchases I made under hundred bucks. I think it cost 30, $40. That's pretty American. good. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty cheap, isn't it? Cool. How do you want to be remembered? So we recently uh, interviewed Aaron Draplin and he, we asked him a similar question and, or maybe he just mentioned this randomly, but it was so brilliant. I thought is he said, I just want to make stuff that people use, like not stuff that people look at and forget about or just consume and it's gone. Like that's why, right? Like uh, I'm assuming most people listening know Aaron Draplin, but Aaron Draplin has something called field notes, which are like little tiny paper notebooks where you can write your notes in or sketches or do whatever he loves making stuff like that. He loves making something where people draw on it, you know, like the field notes. Or if you ever see him at a conference, he has everything from pens to draw with to, draw with, to little pill boxes to put your medications in. He loves making real little things. And I think that I kind of, he inspired me to kind of want to do the same. I, I want to make stuff people use. That, that's really it. I think that's neat. I think it's so neat to think that someone grabs your stuff and someone is somewhere always using it to do something. That's so cool. That's, that's brilliant. I mean, you're doing it. You are. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you and say hello? Um, so if you want to check out the site that I've been talking about, um, yeah, that's Retrosupply, which is retrosupply.co. If you want to learn about building a passive income selling design stuff like Retrosupply does, you can check out passiveincomefordesigners.com. Super long name. Um, you can listen to me <laughs> if, you, if you really want to hear me talk regularly. You, can, um, you can just Google The Honest Designers Show, and it's a podcast. Three other people, two being um, Brits. Brits isn't, isn't a derogatory term, is it? No, no. <laughs> okay, I'm never sure with, with it. Um, the two of them, two of them are from um, the UK, um, and they're amazing. Um, you can check us out there, and you can follow me on social media just by uh, typically it's Hey Dustin Lee. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. Man, thanks for having me on. I'm glad we got a chance to talk, and hopefully, hopefully, there's some useful stuff for some people out there. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Creative Waffle Podcast. 
thank you to Dustin for being on the show. Really appreciated his time and I love chatting to him. Make sure you go and check out his work and his retro supply stuff. Links down below in the description. Also, if you would like to win a book, email hello at bluedeardesign.co.uk. The first person from this episode to email in will win a book. I'm not 100% sure which book yet, but it'll be a design book that you haven't got. So uh, we'll sort it out. Don't forget to subscribe, like the video, share with a friend if you enjoyed it. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next episode.